This is episode 174 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show is supported each week by listeners just like you who shop in our store, donate to the show, or sign up to become a member where you can cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare with digital activity kits that let you try out some of the history you learn about here on the show. Be a part of continuing the legacy of William Shakespeare at CassidyCash.com. Hi, I'm Amy Lidster, postdoctoral research fellow at King's College London. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. Hair's a commodity, so that you would find that women would sell or barter their hair to buy handkerchiefs or perhaps a petticoat. Pepys himself, again, he sells his hair to the wig maker. So it was a a luxury. Again, we've seen the introduction of French wig makers into London, highly expensive, and they would be using human hair. But also goats and horse hair could be used. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The wig was first introduced to England around 1572, when Shakespeare was only eight years old. The fashion would catch on very quickly in England, promoted by the queen herself, who was known for wearing wigs in her older years and defined by her naturally curly red hair in her youth. There are over a hundred references to hair across Shakespeare's works, many of them calling attention to the color of the hair and assigning value not only to particular colors, but also reflecting the importance of keeping one's hair neatly tended. In Henry V, the Duke of Burgundy says that prisoners are notable for being overgrown with hair. And Henry VI, part two, the Earl of Warwick defines a ghastly man as being recognizable by how his, quote, well-proportioned beard is made rough and rugged, end quote. Later in the same play, Winchester calls attention to the cultural importance of a well-kept grooming regimen when he associates a demonstrative problem with wild hair. He says, quote, comb down his hair. Look, look, it stands upright, end quote. These are just a few references in Shakespeare's plays that reveal to us the kinds of hair, combs, dyes, and periwigs, the now archaic term used in Shakespeare's lifetime to describe a wig, that were present during the life of the bard. Here today to help us explore the vanity table of the 16th century and examine exactly what were the kind of Elizabethan wigs, hair dye, hair brushes, and toilet products used for women and men of the turn of the 17th century London is our guest and contributor to the Tudors to Windsor's British Royal Portraits Exhibition at the Royal Museum's Greenwich, Sue Pritchard. This exhibition is a collaboration with the National Portrait Gallery London and features 500 years of royal portraiture that offers us today a view into the hair care from Shakespeare's lifetime. The exhibition is now on display at Royal Museums Greenwich, and we will link you to more information on how to see the exhibition in today's show notes. Sue Pritchard is Senior Curator, Art at Royal Museums Greenwich. She is responsible for the strategic planning of the Queen's House, which includes exhibitions and displays. Sue's research interests include fashioning the body and portraiture, women and the domestic environment and gender relations. Hello, Sue. Welcome to the show. 
Hi, Cassidy. It's been great. Thank you so much for inviting me. Shakespeare uses the term periwig in Comedy of Errors, Hamlet, and Two Gentlemen of Verona, and all of them seem to be associated with men. And that surprised me because I had considered wigs to be something that women would have worn, particularly in light of Queen Elizabeth, who is known to have worn them. Are there examples of periwigs in the portraits of the Tudors to Windsor's exhibition? And are wigs primarily for men during Shakespeare's lifetime? That's a really interesting question. Of course, um, Shakespeare would have had intimate knowledge of wigs because he actually rented a room from a Huguenot wig maker in Cripplegate. So he would have actually had access to the whole process of wig making, which is really interesting. But I think it's really important to understand that for women in the 16th century, basically the, the clergy decreed that their hair should be covered. So as dictated by St. Paul in the Bible. So um, in the exhibition, you'll see two portraits, one of Catherine of Aragon and one of Anne Boleyn. And Catherine of Aragon is wearing a gable hood, which has a, um, an apex at the front above the forehead. And not, she doesn't have any hair on display. But when you get to Anne Boleyn, and of course, Anne's been brought up in a French court, and she's actually wearing um, a French hood, which sits further back on her head. And you can actually start to see her hair. It's only really um, with relaxation, I then start to see the emergence of elaborate hairstyles and, of course, wigs. And as you quite rightly say, it is Elizabeth who, during her lifetime, earned wore something like, owned something like 80 wigs, that the popularity of wigs um, really comes into fashion. Women and men were wearing wigs to cover thinning hair, but it's really Elizabeth that brings the fashion to the court. But when we think about periwigs, I think what we're really thinking about in our mind's eye is that amazing wig that was worn by um, Charles II. Um, it's really in the 1660s that you're actually getting this idea of the periwig, um, the full-bottomed wig, the full wig that um, was popularised by both Charles II and his brother, James Duke of York. And in fact, it wasn't that Charles Charles was bored in. He didn't lose his hair. When he came to the throne in 1660, he actually did have a full head of black hair. He goes grey quite rapidly. He goes grey within three years, can't abide it, doesn't like the way he looks. And then he shaves his head and he starts wearing the full bottom wigs. And this is what, again, kickstarts the popularity for men of the uh, restoration court to wear wigs. And indeed, Peeps himself actually buys one once, the, once he sees the king wearing one. Shakespeare's reference to periwigs and comedy of errors says, quote, to pay a fine for a periwig and recover the lost hair of another man, end quote. So were periwigs made of real human hair? Indeed, they were. Much as today, hair's a commodity. So that you would find that women would sell or barter their hair to buy handkerchiefs or perhaps a petticoat. Peeps himself, again, he sells his hair to the wig maker. So it was a, a luxury. Again, we've seen the introduction of French wig makers into London, highly expensive, and they would be using human hair. But also goats and horse hair could be used. So even if you couldn't afford the luxury of human hair, you could indeed afford a wig that was made from either goat or horse's hair. I found only two references to the word comb in Shakespeare's works, both of which are found in Taming of the Shrew. Katharina uses the phrase, quote, to comb your noddle with a three-legged stool and paint your face, end quote, with noddle referring to someone's head. And then Grumio later in the play says, quote, let their heads be sleekly combed, end quote. Sue, was there such a thing as a hairbrush for Elizabethan England or did everyone use a comb? 
Oh, I don't you think noddle is such a fantastic word? It it's so a, is. <laughs> it's, it's a word I grew up with in my childhood. We were always really? saying you're doing my noddling. It's <laughs> such a it's such a fantastic word. I just love that word. Yes, I mean I think, you know, we have to kind of rely on on uh, material culture for this. You'll find a lot of fabulous combs made from ivory that are in museum collections. There's a wonderful um, ivory cone in the collection of the V&A, and it's highly decorated with a scene from David and Bathsheba. And of course, David famously sees spies Bathsheba at her bathtub. But of course, combs were very practical because at this period, you know, head lice and fleas were common. So you would use a comb to comb your hair, to comb out the fleas and comb out the headlights. So they were incredibly practical. And there's a wonderful portrait of um, Elizabeth Vernon, Countess of, of Southampton, who was married to Henry um, Wolseley, who was a patron of Shakespeare. And it's an extremely unusual portrait. It's in the private collection of the Duke of Buccleuch. And she's she's in her closet, she's in her, her bedchamber, and her gown is open, and you can see her pink whalebone stays. But more importantly, her hair is loose, and she's using a, a comb to comb her hair. So it's from portraits that we get an indication of how the elite, how elite women would use um, these luxury items in the privacy of their closet or their bedchamber. Elizabeth I was known for her red hair and for wearing wigs to accomplish that appearance later in life. But would Elizabethans have ever used dye to change the color of their natural hair? Oh, absolutely. And again, we're talking about trendsetters and Elizabeth was an absolute trendsetter. It's really important to understand that the color of her hair was incredibly significant for her because her red hair linked her to her father, Henry VIII, and it validated her legitimacy to the crown. Um, she spent most of her childhood basically in fear of not be, of being um, basically rejected and sidelined from the crown. So her red hair was incredibly important. And she wears her hair loose. She wears her hair loose on her coronation day, um, which is a sign of her virginity. But um, she almost immediately she t- she takes to the to the throne. She starts to lose her hair, and this is when she starts to style her hair with curls to cover the bald patches. And then eventually she has to wear wigs. But um, yes, I mean, obviously the court, because they wanted to curry favour with the Queen, would dye their hair red. But of course, they were using incredibly toxic substances to do so. Um, They were using various mixtures, including saffron and sulphur powder, expensive, but also incredibly toxic. And of course, the side effect of this was it made your hair fall out. So you were wearing, you were dyeing your hair, you were wearing wigs to emulate the queen. But of course, it was a vicious circle because all of the products that you were using uh, was actually having a detrimental effect on your hair. The reference we mentioned earlier from Katharina telling Hortensio to, quote, paint your face is presumably not talking about artwork, but instead talking about makeup. That's a phrase we use today to talk about putting on makeup. Sue, would Elizabethans have used facial cosmetics? Absolutely, yes. Um, But again, really interestingly, in 1558, a visit by the Venetian ambassador, he describes ladies at the English court as being um, having fresh complexions and a general lack of paint. So paint is a term that we would use, that we would use cosmetics or makeup, 
but the term paint, the painted face, is when women were painting their faces. And it's really around about 1662 that you start to see the introduction of paint. And this is really as a result of Elizabeth I having smallpox. So her skin is damaged. It's not incredibly scarred, but it is damaged. It's not as as badly damaged as her lady-in-waiting, Mary Sidney, who unfortunately nursed Elizabeth all the way through her illness, caught smallpox herself, was incredibly disfigured, very scarred, so much so that it offended the eyes of Elizabeth and she banished her from court. So it was a really sad story. But Elizabeth, um, because she did have naturally pale skin, was then used in paint to enhance and cover the scars from smallpox. And again, you don't need to be um, a scientist or a chemist to understand that the ingredients that they were using, highly toxic. So she was using white lead mixed with vinegar, um, which would be formed into a paste and her latest bedchamber would apply it with a face cloth and then they would overlay it with a glaze of egg white to to produce this glow this translucent glow but of course as the the egg white hardened if your face was mobile if you cracked a smile then of course it would crack the glaze and another side effect was as as the longer you wore it it became gray so you would reapply the white paint to increase that idea of of the white complexion and again, they were using Spanish Spanish pigment, uh, mercury on their cheeks to give them a blush. And again, using ceruse again, rolled into a paste and coloured with vermilion, which is mercury, on their lips. So everything that they're applying to their face, all of these ladies of the, of the court, everything they're applying to their face is incredibly toxic. In Hamlet, the character Hamlet says, quote, I have heard of your paintings too well enough. God hath given you one face and you make yourselves another, end quote. Now, in this scene, Hamlet is speaking metaphorically, but I'm curious how face painting was received culturally for Shakespeare's lifetime. You mentioned that it didn't really catch on in popularity until later in the 17th century. So when Shakespeare was writing about painting your face, was it considered good or bad for people to wear makeup? Well, I think it's always been associated, paint is always associated with prostitution. So you get this idea that the Venetian courtesans who are painting their faces, they're applying white uh, white makeup. Venetian ceruse, which is the, the white lead, was considered to be the very best you know, white makeup that you could acquire. So there is a kind of morality issue around here. But as I say, it's incredibly toxic. So everything that these, these women are putting on their face is actually damaging their skin damaging their health really um, I mean certainly in terms of mercury you've got a whole range of side effects ranging from irritability mood swings insomnia headaches all of which we know Elizabeth suffered from so she was obviously you know suffering from these side effects but also contemporaries were observing how the effect of makeup was detrimental so it had the opposite effect to what women were expecting it to have in terms of making themselves look more attractive and one contemporary observed these women who use it about their faces do quickly become withered and grey-headed because this stuff so mightily dry up the natural moisture of the flesh. So already it's being perceived as being um, damaging. But I think, you know, one of the the issues I always think is really fascinating is that we need to think about the, the effect of light at the Elizabethan court because you only had two forms of light, you had natural light or you had candlelight. So I think when we read about, you know, where women paint in their faces, although it may have looked perhaps grotesque, 
during the daytime. If you think about it in terms of candlelight, I think you would have got a completely different effect. It's a lot like movie makeup, I think. It's all about the lighting. Well, and it's really interesting when you think of the the amazingly beautiful women that have played um, Elizabeth I, when you think about Kate Blanchett, you know, I mean, they just look absolutely stunning. But of course, they are being made up. They're spending hours in the makeup chair to enable them to look like that. Equally, Elizabeth would have spent hours with her ladies of the bedchamber getting ready. So we've talked about foundation and blush on the cheeks, but what about eyeliner or mascara? Did the Elizabethan women have a way to enhance the way their eyes looked? Well, they wouldn't have worn mascara. They may, again, have used a tint on their their eyelids. They may have used a blue tint. Blue was actually used in conjunction with the white lead. So um, certainly women, when they painted their faces white, they would be then painting the veins in their decolletage to enhance the whiteness of their skin. So they may have used the blue on their their eyelids as well. Elizabeth inherited the striking black eyes of her mother, Anne Boleyn. And at this point, you know, she is actually trading with the Ottoman Empire. She's she's not able to, to, to trade with Catholic Europe because obviously, you know, she is a Protestant, so she's excommunicated. She may have introduced some coal into her eyes, which she would have which she would have had access to with the um, Levant Company. But again, both men and women were using Belladonna as eye drops into the eye to dilate the eyes. So you've got this kind of very doe-eyed, dewy look. And of course, Belladonna, which is deadly nightshade, is, is poisonous as well. So again, you're kind of ruining your eyesight by putting in these eye drops. What about washing your hair? Was there such a thing as shampoo in Shakespeare's lifetime? Not shampoo as we know it, no, not at all. I mean, the whole ritual of bathing in the 16th century is completely different. And, you know, Elizabeth I was famously said to have taken a bath for once a month, whether she needs it or no. But, you know, the Tudors did have bathrooms. They just perhaps didn't bathe on a daily basis. They would have used warm water and and, um, olive oil soap and and face cloths. But in terms of hair washing, um, Elizabeth's ladies at the bedchamber would have used uh, lyre, which is uh, wood ash and water. And then they would have draped a combing cloth around her shoulders, rubbed her hair with a warm, coarse cloth, which would then remove the grease and dandruff, and then again comb her hair. The first metal hairpin was invented in England in 1545. Sue, did this invention change the kinds of hairstyles that were popular in Tudor England for women specifically? You mentioned there being a cultural distinction between wearing the hair down and then Elizabeth intentionally using curls to kind of hide her hair. What other kinds of tools or pens would have been used to create different hairstyles that you can see in these portraits? Well, it's really interesting because, um, as I say, Elizabeth had basically introduced the trend for curling and and her ladies would have used curling tongs. So the smell of singed hair would have been quite, (laughs) would have been a daily part of daily routine in her bedchamber as she was curling her hair to try and cover the the ball patches. What I think is really interesting is that, as I say, you get this relaxation of the, the laws which enforce women to cover their hair. You have these elaborate hairstyles. But then... In the um, early part of the 17th century, when um, James I takes the crown, you get this fashion um, really led by Anna of Denmark, his queen consort, for women cutting their hair. 
And this is actually seen as being really controversial. This is seen as women trying to emulate men because they're starting to cut their hair. And James commands his clergy to go out and to teach, and I quote, against the insolency of our women and their wearing of broad-brimmed hats, pointed doublets, their hair cut short or shorn, and some of them carrying stilettos or poniards, small slim daggers. So women are then actually cutting their hair. So they're not actually using um, wigs or they're not using pins to create these elaborate hairstyles. They're actually cutting their hair. And this is actually seen as a sin against nature. But then as we move further into into the the century, uh, you get women wearing these kind of quite elaborate sort of wire constructions at the side of their heads and creating these, these ringlets and these tendrils so that they're sticking out from the side of their heads. And quite often they would also be wearing hair pieces to create this elaborate hairstyle with the bun at the top and the the tendrils and the curls at the side. Oh, I just love the implication there that Princess Leia from Star Wars would fit right in with Shakespeare's lifetime. (laughs) Absolutely. She would have been a style icon. (laughs) And again, I think, again, you then get something again, this is really interesting, where you kind of get it going full swing again, where you get, um, we've talked about, you know, the the fashion for these full periwigs introduced by Charles II and James, Duke of York. And so then you're getting women at the Restoration Court starting to wear periwigs. So, and again, you get this kind of whole controversy around this idea that women are actually wearing wigs to make them look like men. And again, Pepys, who is a fantastic kind of resource, as you know, he writes that ladies would appear at court at Whitehall, and I quote, wearing their riding garbs with coats and doublets with deep skirts, just for the world like men, and button their doublets up the breast with periwigs and with hats, so that only for a long petticoat dragging under their men's coats, nobody could take them for women at any point whatsoever, which was an odd sight, and a sight did not please me. So, again, women have kind of, you know, playing with this idea of elaborate hairstyles, cutting their hair, wearing men's wigs. And all the time it's seen as this kind of women, you know, trying to emulate men and trying to kind of work outside the norms of nature. So what about the men's hairstyle? I mean, they they were feeling like they were being emulated when Shakespeare was was getting ready for the day. I mean, I think today men have items like hair gel or mousse or even hairspray that gets used to put their hair together in the morning. Would Shakespeare have had similar concerns over getting ready in the morning for him or was it a simpler process for men? Well, Unfortunately, um, Shakespeare was famously vertically challenged, (laughs) or follically challenged, should I say, follically challenged. No, I think, I mean, you had that amazing podcast with um, Alan Whitby talking about, you know, barber surgeons and barbers. I think, you know, I don't think men would have styled their hair per se. I think, I mean, certainly with Elizabeth, when she started going bored, her apothecaries were creating salves and pomades for her head to kind of, you know, encourage hair growth. But obviously, it didn't work. I mean, it's a really interesting question. I've not read anything to suggest that mousse or hair gel was prevalent amongst um, Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare's peers. But I mean, you know, I mean, people are incredibly inventive. You know, they may have created a, a, a glue with sugar and water, which could, you know, create some kind of styling mousse. <laughs> As one does, as one does. As one does, when one <laughs> is, you know, short of those essential ingredients in your bathroom cabinet. Absolutely. Oh, I know we would love to explore this topic further, as well as to find out 
how we can see the exhibition there at the Royal Museum Greenwich. Could you tell us some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more, as well as how can we see all of these portraits on display? Well, at the moment, we have the Tudors to Windsor's um, exhibition um, running at the National Maritime Museum until um, October 2021. We also have a fabulous once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see the only three surviving Amada portraits of Elizabeth I in the Queen's house. And we've brought them together for the first time in their 400-year history. So you've got a double whammy at Greenwich at the moment. So I would encourage anyone to come along and you know take the opportunity to see both exhibitions. I'm a huge fan of, of two amazing books. One is Elizabeth's Women, The Hidden History of the Virgin Queen by Tracy Borman, who is chief curator at uh, at historic royal palaces and my very very well thumbed um, Elizabeth Bedfellows an intimate history of the Queen's Court by Anna Whitelock and that is as you can see a really well thumbed book but I became increasingly interested in um, the issue of Elizabeth's insecurity and there's a very small book Elizabeth I a study in insecurity by Helen Castor and that does talk about how when she um, comes to the throne she is immediately under so much pressure to marry and produce an heir that she actually does start to suffer um, very early on. She starts to lose her hair and she starts to suffer from insomnia and headaches and just, you know, really is constantly living on her nerves, basically, because of all the pressures that she's under. So those are the three books that are my, my go-to whenever I'm asked any questions about um, Elizabeth and, you know, her the intimate history of her bedchamber. Those are excellent resources. Thank you so much for recommending those. We will have links to these books as well as the exhibition at the Royal Museum's Greenwich that you can check out in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stop by there to find those. So we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, you know... That was a really, really hard question. You can't see my bookcases behind me. So, um, but you know, Cassidy, I'm a Londoner, and I come from generations of Londoners. So, my parents, my grandparents, my great grandparents, aunts, uncles. You know, we all lived in London. I was born in Westminster, and my grandparents lived in Chelsea and so the book that I would take with me is the London Encyclopedia which is edited by Ben uh, Weinreb and Christopher Hibbert and it's a fantastic resource it's all it's chock full of amazing facts about streets buildings people and events and it really is the kind of it reminds me of my childhood when I spent so much of my time walking between various of my relatives homes and it's the kind of landscape of my my childhood so it would it would just be my my companion excellent selection for sure so what's next for you what are you working on now that you're excited about well, I've spent um, three years immersed in the Amada portrait of Elizabeth I and, you know, very much part of that Elizabethan court. So um, the next really exciting um, project for the arts team is we are about to embark on some new research for a book on the art, architecture and material culture and cultural significance of the Queen's House. And I think people are uh, unaware of just how important this building actually is. It's the first Palladian 
building in this country. It has the same cultural status. It's a scheduled ancient monument. It has the same status as Stonehenge. It's a really, really important building. Um, but there's so much that we don't know about it. It's been a royal retreat. It's been an artist studio. It's been a grace and favour apartment. In the 19th century, it was a school. And um, now it's the, the art gallery of um, Royal Museums Greenwich. So it's a really important, significant building. So we're just about to start on some new research for that. Exciting things coming from Royal Museums Greenwich. That's I'll look forward to seeing that. Thank you so much, Sue Pritchard, for being here today and walking us through the history of Elizabethan wigs and hair care for Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Do come and see us in Greenwich. The video version of our show today, where you can see some of these portraits Sue mentions, as well as join Sue and I in the studio and watch her tell you about all of these fabulous portraits, is now free and streaming on our YouTube channel. You can find that at youtube.com slash C slash Cassidy Cash, or I link you directly to this episode from the show notes for today. Along with the link to this video streaming version, you can find more information on the history of Elizabethan hair care and the direct link to the Tudors to Windsor's exhibition at Royal Museums Greenwich, available in the complete show notes for our episode today at CassidyCash.com slash episode 174. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP174. If you love listening to our show here each week and you are just a huge fan of William Shakespeare that would like to try out some of the history you learn about on the show for yourself, like games, recipes, or crafts that he would have had in his lifetime, then consider becoming a member here at That Shakespeare Life. Members not only support the work we do here and help us keep the show on the air, but they also get access to our activity kits. We have card games, board games, cooking demonstrations, calligraphy kits, all kinds of things from the life of William Shakespeare that you can follow along with and complete right at home with items you can purchase online or at your local market or store. And some of the things you probably already have right in your kitchen or laundry room. Plus, members also get access to our printable worksheets, lesson plans, coloring pages, and more. It really is the best little Shakespeare club ever. Find out more and sign up to become a member today at CassidyCash.com slash member. That's CassidyCash.com slash member. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.